the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's futile, but I try. <clears throat> uh, good news tonight. You get two sermons for the price of one. I was thoroughly aware that we were celebrating the Transfiguration tonight. And so as, as we worked out that I'd be preaching, I dutifully set the readings into my calendar and then set a reminder a, a week in advance to warn me so I could prepare the sermon. After I set up my calendar, we realized that I had some things wrong, switched things around, got the right readings, and I didn't update my calendar. So I prepped those readings. <clears throat> but I prepped those readings knowing that this was the Feast of the Transfiguration, so I thought, wow, these are surprising actually really rich passages for the transfiguration. How cool is that? I wonder why we didn't read about the transfiguration itself. <coughs> but because I was doing this with the transfiguration in mind, we're completely okay, and I've woven it all together, and it'll be really fun. So you get two for the price of one, but we won't go long. <coughs> okay. Uh, Moses, so, so we're the people of Israel, and uh, God, God summons us, and we say, no, 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 no. Um, that would be our death. Moses, you go. So Moses goes. And uh, so he, he goes up for the people. And, and he's up there. He's, he's, he's glowing. He's saturated in light. Thunder and lightning. The people are terrified. There, there's this immense gap between us and Moses. Same thing happens in the Gospels. Jesus takes aside just a handful, just a couple of his disciples, not even all 12. They go up. And this phenomenal thing happens, which sums up the whole Old Testament. Here is the anointed Messiah, a light in his glory, with the law and the prophets. It's the Old Testament. <clears throat> and the disciples are in awe. But there are some of the other disciples that are, you know, and, and then the, other, the others beyond that that would follow Jesus. That are, so, so we're all down here, and they're up there. The, the, the two stories parallel each other. Some or one, is way up high, and the others are down below. And the ones that are down below, of course, are to follow the ones that are up high. That's the logic of the stories. And all the, the, the light that gives this powerful image of the glory of God that saturates these stories gives warrant to these are the ones which we should obey and follow. Their words are law, and their laws are good. <clears throat> okay, fair enough. Now we're going to put that in contrast with something, with a set of readings that, uh, that I prepared that are fantastically interwoven with the Transfiguration. <clears throat> I'm going to start with Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians 5.21, which is the end of the passage, says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We are supposed to submit. This sounds exactly like the language from, that would happen in the Moses story and in that of the Transfiguration where one is up high interacting with God and the rest of us are supposed to obey and follow. Right. <clears throat> I want to paint a completely different picture of submission, however. I want to interpret that one word from Ephesians 5.21 in light of these stories and the transfiguration and the way that pulls them all together to give a vision for what submission might mean. What, what is this thing that we're all called to? Does it mean simply obeying the person who is over us, who gives us the law? Because we're used to that notion of submission. <clears throat> this, uh, our dog, most of you have met our dog, Zinni. Like, this is the first time I have, I have owned a dog. And uh, I, didn't, I, wasn't, I don't even own the dog. Katrina owns the dog. She said, we're buying a dog. 
we're getting a dog. And I said, okay. <laughs> and she said, we're getting a lab. And I said, okay. And she said, it's going to be a girl. And I said, okay. <laughs> so Katrina owns a dog. <clears throat> uh, but the dog, ironically, views me as master. It's, it's kind of funny. Uh, she'll come and lay at my feet, uh, which is a little annoying because she's Katrina's dog. And at a certain age, uh, Zinni uh, needed to learn how to be well-behaved, and she was not being well-behaved. So we, we read some stuff and watched some videos and things, and, and my job was a teacher to submit. And so I would give her an order uh, or a command. She wouldn't do it, and I would tell her to do it again, and she wouldn't do it. And then, and then she would get kind of mad at me and jump at me and growl and try to bite me. <coughs> so I had some of the most intense fun of my life. <coughs> I put on the work gloves, <coughs> and I, I'd read about what to do. <laughs> so it made me an expert. <laughs> um, I put on the work gloves. I'd tell her, down. So she was supposed to lay down, and she'd growl and jump. So I just I knocked her down, grabbed her by the throat, got down in her face, and growled. And, and, and we did this for 30, 45. I, I was sweating hard. She was panting. And we did this for about three days. And by the end of the three days, if I said, down, down she went. And ever since, she's been a way happier dog because now she can be around people and things because she knows her place, okay? That's what we tend to think of uh, a submission being. Now, let me read, walk you through a series of passages. In 1 Samuel 16, David is anointed king. <clears throat> the Lord said to Samuel, how long are you going to grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? Saul's going to kill me. Okay. Now, long story short, he goes and he anoints David. <clears throat> okay. But with submission in mind, I want you to attend to a couple elements in this passage. Samuel goes directly against the will of Saul. Saul is the king of the land. Okay. So what does Samuel do? He, he follows the will of the Lord, and he goes directly against the will of the king. But when he, what he does is he goes and he anoints another king. All right. And Samuel, so he, when he anoints him, he takes the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. <clears throat> it's interesting that the spirit rushes upon David because Samuel was a prophet. He spoke through the Spirit. So what did Samuel just do? He'd already warned Israel, don't pick a king. Bad stuff's going to happen. Israel picks a king. And in the process, rejects God, who is their king, and Samuel, his representative. Samuel was already there when Israel rejected his God and him and opted for a king. And now he goes and anoints the second king, and the Spirit rushes upon David but the spirit, that was his thing. What does he do? He is the means by which God gives what made him special to David. It's a little bit like John the Baptist who says, I must decrease so that he can increase, is what Samuel is doing here. So as he's obeying God, he's defying the king, and he's giving precisely what sets him apart to the king in this line of kings that was a rejection of God. It's a complicated story from Samuel's side. The next, the next reading, the psalm for whenever this Sunday was supposed to be. 
oh, am I shooting someone in the foot? I bet I am. Someone's going to be preaching these passages. It'll be fine. There's lots of good stuff in here. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> this one, uh, Psalm 23. We know that one. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. I just want to attend to two things. One is, the shepherd in this psalm is doing everything for the sake of the sheep. And when the psalm ends, I, will, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What does the shepherd do here? The, 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 the sheep does not simply obey the shepherd for the sake of the shepherd. That's not the logic here. The logic is the shepherd does everything in the shepherd's power in order to bless the sheep, and the sheep ends up living in the house of the shepherd. So just like with Samuel, something strange is going on. If you look at Psalm 23 from the vantage point of the shepherd, the shepherd is using the shepherd's resources himself in order to be a means of blessing and elevating of these sheep. The reading from the epistles was going to be Ephesians 5, 14. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for, up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So at first it sounds like we're supposed to obey, but the obedience is of an interesting sort. It's the obedience of imitation. So um, my example with my dog, Zinni, was I command you what to do, and you do it. This command is different. Do what I do is the logic from God's standpoint. Do what I do. Be imitators of me and be my beloved children, children who are supposed to walk up in the ways of the Father. <clears throat> the gospel was John 9. Um, so Jesus is, uh, he heals a man who had been born blind. And this turns into this long back and forth between the establishment, the Pharisees, uh, who start grilling this dude for being healed. How'd you get healed? Why were you healed? Who did this? Were you born in sin and all this stuff? And, and he's like, I don't know. This guy healed me. Go talk to him. They go and they, they talk to the parents. And they're like, we don't, he got healed, right? Um, and it's kind of this, this funny, this funny passage. Um, along the way, though, Jesus says, "We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am the in the world, I am the light of the world." <clears throat> what does the light of the world do? <clears throat> the light of the world, in this case uses himself, his resources, his means to spit in the ground, make some mud, rub it on the person's eyes so that person can see. And there's a really strong connection, obviously, between being light and enabling someone else to see. But then we also are supposed to walk in the light and be light and let your light shine. There's this connection between what Jesus is, what he does to us, and what he enables us to be so that we can be him in the world around us. In all of these stories, there's one person or one way of portraying God through a prophet or Jesus or an apostle. 
And that person uses themselves as the means of blessing the people around them so that they can be like them. Now, along the way in the Ephesians passage, Paul says some harsh things because Paul does that. He says uh, he's talking about people who are sexually immoral or impure, covetous, and he lists some sins. Do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light. You are light in the Lord. You're not just in the light. You are light. So we are what Jesus is. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And now he says these harsh things. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that is visible becomes, or any, anything that becomes visible is light. And that's very similar to the reading from the gospel, <clears throat> where at the end of it, after he's had all, Jesus has had all these interactions with these Pharisees who are just grilling him over healing someone on the Sabbath, he says the harshest thing of all, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say, We see, your guilt remains. Okay. We need to tie this into the transfiguration. You would think that the story of Moses and the story of Jesus are the first normal kind of obedience. One person is set aside, raised up to, lo- to, to be with God, and then they are the means of telling everyone else, this is what you need to do. <clears throat> but this set of readings and the stories of transfiguration from the Old Testament and the New Testament, I think all go hand in hand. Moses does not come down to simply tell the people what to do. He comes down with the law. And the law is meant to be the means by which Israel can establish its holiness before a holy God, be holy as I am holy. So what is Moses doing? In this foretelling of the transfiguration, God is blessing him so that he can be a means of the blessing of Israel so that all Israel can be holy before a holy God. Same thing in this story of trans in this in the story of the transfiguration. This is not a way of setting apart Jesus, not only a way of setting apart Jesus and saying, wow, look how different he is. Um, from what I understand through in the in the in the Orthodox Church, the Feast of the Transfiguration is one of the absolute greatest feasts in the calendar year. And one of the reasons for that is that the transfiguration is the revealing of the glory of humankind in Christ. Look, that's one of us. It's not that, oh, look, he's God after all. It's, look, that's one of us. That's our fate. Because these passages weave us together with Christ. We are in Christ. We are light. We are light in the world because he is light. And the light comes and sheds light, and that light is contagious. It's not, oh, wow, he's different. It's, that's our fate. So with that in mind, I want to weave all these things together and to try to tell you what I think submission means according to these passages. 
I think that submission starts with who God is and how God acts. God uses himself as the means of enabling us to be in him. We have a problem, not just our creatureliness, but our sin. So what is God's solution? God's solution is not something other than God. God uses himself in the incarnation to be the means of making us sons and daughters of God. God uses himself as a means of blessing us, himself as a means of raising us up to him. Not that we cease to be human, not that we cease to be creatures, but as human, as creatures, we participate in God's own life. We are holy as God is holy, we are light as God is light. In John 17, we are one as he is one. But that language is taking the language of who God is and using it to describe us. God uses himself to be the means of bringing us into himself, into his life, that he might bless us. And that's the logic of all these other stories. To submit is not to obey, like my dog Zinni. To submit to someone, and that's what we're called to do, submit to one another. To submit to someone, I submit to someone. I am using myself as a means to bless someone so that they can have what I have. I'm using myself as a means of extending what blessings have been given to me so that they too might be blessed. That's submission. That's why Paul can say, take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. If submission means obedience, then there can be no exposing. If submission means obedience, Samuel shouldn't defy Saul. But if I am using myself as a means of blessing someone, then maybe exposing needs to happen. It's a scary thing, a terrifying thing. Samuel was quaking at the idea. But to submit to someone can mean using everything I am in order to bless them. But blessing someone who's in sin can involve exposing. As a work of love, in order to bless and share what we've been given. But it's an aggressive thing and a lovely thing. And it saturates all these stories. And it's hard as heck. And how to do it takes immense wisdom and it's something we do not alone, but as the church and interacting with each other so the church can do its work because we're not called to be Christ on our own. Christ is Christ on his own and we're his body. But we are to imitate God. And from these passages, I think God submits to us. Not that we do, not that he does our will, because that's not what's involved. God submits to us in that God uses himself and his own resources to be the means of blessing us with what he has. It's a contagious sharing sort of thing. But we know how aggressive it is because Jesus says, I came for judgment. And that judgment works different ways. On the one hand, it says, I am judging you and well done. I am judging you to be righteous. And on the other hand, it can mean judgment for the Pharisees who are absolutely impeding the work and kingdom of God. That, I, that's from the best I can tell, not just from these passages, from Christian teaching as a whole. That's what we're called to do. That's submission. It's a joyful, terrifying work that can involve both immense blessing and immense conflict, but it's where we use what we've been given in the Lord to bless others so they might share in it. May the Lord bless you and keep you.